Welcome to Episode 2 of History of the Marine Corps, Samuel and Joshua Carpenter. Last week we discussed the tavern trade in colonial America. Each episode is designed to stand alone, so it's not necessary to listen to last week's podcast, Tavern Trade in Colonial Philadelphia. However, there will be references to last week's podcast, so if you are interested, this is a perfect time to pause and download the previous episode before you move forward. Anyways, in last week's episode, we discussed the importance of the tavern trade in colonial America, Benjamin Franklin and William Penn's thoughts on how to use the tavern industry to further enhance America's independence, the rise and fall of one of the most expensive taverns in the 18th century, City Tavern, start of hotels in America, and introduce Samuel Carpenter, the protagonist in this episode, whose brother is the founder of Tun Tavern, which many Marines herald as the birthplace of the United States Marine Corps. This week, we dig a little further into Samuel and Joshua's life and discuss the origins and even some of the proprietors of Tun Tavern. Thanks for joining. Now let's talk about the history of the Marine Corps. The number of taverns in colonial Philadelphia were growing consistently. Much like the United States today, colonial America offered immigrants the opportunity to succeed despite their social status. Philadelphians of all social statuses, especially those who were underprivileged, made a comfortable living in the tavern trade. However, this wasn't limited to only the underprivileged. Many first-generation Philadelphians were wealthy and invested in the tavern trade for the potential of a large return on investment. Owning a tavern didn't necessarily guarantee a profit, but the irresistible gamble caused the tavern trade to grow rapidly. Samuel and Joshua Carpenter were amongst the many risk-takers who came to colonial America looking for success and were some of Philadelphia's first capitalists. Samuel and Joshua Carpenter's father was John Carpenter. John Carpenter appears to have been married three times. Mary, who was his first wife, gave birth to two of his children, John and Joshua. Mary passed away in 1640 at the age of 29, two years after the birth of Joshua. Shortly after Mary's death, John married Sarah in 1642. She gave birth to the first of six children, one of which will be Samuel, who was born on November 4, 1649. Sarah would die one year later on September 28, 1650, at the age of 35. John would go on to marry his third wife, Elizabeth, who will give birth to another three of his children. Not much is known about Elizabeth Carpenter, including her death, but John lived until August 9, 1671, and died at the age of 89. Samuel and Joshua were born in Horsham, England, which is in Sussex County. Both brothers were well-educated, which was extraordinary for the times. Education wasn't cheap, and presumably, John Carpenter was a very wealthy man, since he had the ability to educate his children. Samuel Carpenter most likely left England in 1671, soon after the death of his father. Samuel left with plenty of money in hand, which was another indicator of John's wealth. Although Samuel was the first to leave England, he did not go directly to Pennsylvania. Samuel's first stop was in Barbados where he would invest in sugar as an attempt to gain wealth. He was successful, and his sugar investment became very profitable, 
Samuel was also a pacifist, and according to Barbados records, in 1673, Samuel was fined 1,100 pounds of sugar for failing to supply men-in-arms. He was fined again in 1683 for 6,673 pounds of sugar for similar fines of failing to furnish men-at-arms. Soon after this fine, Samuel Carpenter came to Philadelphia in 1683 at the request of William Penn, and his brother, Joshua, joined him within two years, also with plenty of money in hand. Samuel came to colonial Philadelphia as a Quaker and with the wealth he acquired in Barbados. Quakers were not popular in England during this time. During the English Civil War, which took place from 1642 to 1651, many English citizens were unhappy with the Church of England and their teachings. George Fox was one of those unhappy citizens, and in the 1640s he left his home to embark on a spiritual quest and look for other like-minded people looking to restructure the Church of England. He started a movement called the Religious Society of Friends, who rejected elaborate religious ceremonies, didn't have official clergy, and believed in spiritual equality for men and women. As the Society of Friends started to evolve, Fox started to believe that God was not present in churches, but was found within people. This was very controversial at the time, because it meant that women and men were spiritual equals, and women were allowed to speak out during worship. The controversy led to the persecution and many Quakers were victimized and jailed for their beliefs, including George Fox. Fox was first jailed in 1650 for blasphemy. He would spend most of the 1660s locked up. Quaker missionaries made their way to North America in the mid-1650s, the first being Elizabeth Harris. However, the New World didn't yet offer the religious freedom known today and many were still prosecuted. In fact, four Quakers were executed in Massachusetts. William Penn, who was the founder of Pennsylvania, was a Quaker as well, and served time in jail on multiple occasions for his belief. In 1681, William Penn was given a large land grant as a substitute to pay off debt owned to his family. Penn wanted the New World to serve as a religious sanctuary and provide the freedom to worship God in your own way. A few years later, several thousand Quakers from England made their way to colonial Philadelphia, and that included Samuel Carpenter. Samuel Carpenter purchased 5,000 acres of land in Pennsylvania. 5,000 acres of land is a lot in any time period, but this was a lot in colonial Philadelphia. For such a large purchase, William Penn rewarded Samuel Carpenter with one of the best pieces of land in the city of Philadelphia, which was situated right on the water. Samuel would later sell a piece of this land to Joshua when he moved to Pennsylvania. Penn got along very well with Samuel Carpenter, but he quickly realized that the Carpenter brothers were more interested in their wealth and selfishness rather than their religious freedom. Joshua was prominent as one of the founders of Christ Church in Philadelphia, so it wasn't a surprise to Penn when he didn't embrace a religious experiment. However, Samuel Carpenter was a known Quaker and came to colonial Philadelphia as a Quaker. Naturally, Penn was disappointed that the two of the wealthiest men in Philadelphia didn't share his idea of religious freedom with the same enthusiasm, but he didn't hold it against them too much. Samuel and Joshua Carpenter were very influential and still played a big part in the development of Philadelphia. With 5,000 acres of land on the waterfront, Samuel planned to build a wharf to stretch across the Delaware, which he described the length as, so far as I might see fit. Both Samuel and Joshua rejected the concept of collecting taxes for Penn, and in the early 1700s, Joshua Carpenter led a tax revolt against Penn, 
Ironically, Samuel Carpenter would be appointed as a provincial treasurer on June 4, 1704. He and four others appointed trustees of the mortgage when the province was mortgaged by William Penn. William Penn would also appoint Samuel Carpenter to deputy for the governor in 1694. Samuel Carpenter was actively engaged in not only his private businesses, but also improvements of the town and the affairs of the government. John Fanning Watson, an antiquarian, amateur historian, and author in Colonial Philadelphia, stated, The name of Samuel Carpenter is connected with everything of a public nature in the worldly annals of Philadelphia. I have seen his name at every turn in searching the old records. He was the Stephen Girard of his day for wealth, and the William Sansom in the improvements he made and the edifices he built. I'm not going to dig into Stephen Girard and William Sansom, but for the sake of context of Watson's quote, Stephen Girard was a banker in colonial America, one of the wealthiest people in America at the time, and personally saved the U.S. government from financial collapse during the War of 1812 by providing the United States government credit through his bank. William Sansom was a mineralogist who built one of the finest mineral collections ever assembled in America. Samuel Carpenter was one of the most influential people who shaped Philadelphia. His devotion to the growth of Philadelphia, love of business, and strategic thinking helped form colonial Philadelphia. Samuel Carpenter owned multiple properties, one of which was a slate roof house which was built for him in 1698 by James Portis and located on 2nd Street in Philadelphia. William Penn rented the slate roof house from Samuel Carpenter from 1699 to 1701. Penn would use this house when he stayed in the city. During one of his stays, Penn wrote the Charter of Privileges. The Charter of Privileges was meant to be a framework for Pennsylvania's government, but it was so profound that it was considered to be the first step in the development of the United States Constitution and world democracy. The Slate Roof House would also house other members of the First Continental Congress, such as John Adams and John Hancock. Samuel Carpenter would later sell this house at a loss for 800 pounds to William Trent, founder of Trenton, New Jersey. On April 10, 1714, Samuel Carpenter would die at the house of his son-in-law, William Fishbourne, at Sepviva Plantation in Philadelphia. James Logan, colonial secretary to William Penn, amongst many other things, would write Penn, We have now lost our dear friend Samuel Carpenter. He departed last night about eleven at his daughter Fishbourne's, where he lodged when taken ill. He lay about twelve days ill of a violent rheumatism and fever, in great pain, but just before his departure, he took leave of all his friends about him and went quietly away. You can still visit Samuel Carpenter's grave today. He is buried at the Friends Arch Street Meeting House Burial Ground in Philadelphia. Both Samuel and Joshua jumped on the tavern bandwagon and established public houses for themselves. However, they did not personally operate the taverns, but hired tavern keepers to manage the operations. In 1686, Joshua built a brewery on land that Samuel gifted him, and I'll give you one guess on the name. You guessed it, Tun Tavern. Only it wasn't called Tun Tavern. Tun Tavern definitely existed, except it was simply called Tun. Joshua built the Tun on the cartway that led to Carpenter's Wharf. This cartway later became known as Tun Alley, and was where the brewery was located, for Samuel and Joshua. For Samuel and Joshua, the construction of a public house that can be used as a colonial hotel and tavern was very profitable and also created collaboration opportunities commercially. Samuel Carpenter's Wharf brought in ships. 
which lured in merchants, traders, sailors, and dock workers. All of these men would meet and discuss business opportunities at Samuel and Joshua's public houses. Taverns provided an uncommon opportunity for women to generate money. There are many examples of widows who became successful tavern keepers after their husband had passed. It provided them a means to take care of themselves. Peter Cuff was one of the partners of Eight Partners Brewery. In 1734, Peter died, and in March his wife Elizabeth would serve as a manager for nine months. The other seven partners weren't too happy with this decision. There are letters to and from the partners that express their disappointment with Peter's death, because he had just brought the business into good order and acquired a reputation both in Philadelphia and the West Indies. Elizabeth hired another tenant to help her manage the eight partners' brewery, James Davis. Summer was coming and breweries needed to use the hops and malt before temperatures rose. There wasn't enough time to find someone and train them, so the partners grudgingly agreed to hand over the reins of the tavern to Elizabeth and her new assistant. Elizabeth was a very successful manager, and she succeeded in providing the same pay to the partners as her late husband. Elizabeth's new assistant, James Davis, was a trained brewer. James Davis wasn't a wealthy man, and immigrated to the American colonies as an indentured servant. Indentured servitude was very common for the time, and most immigrants would earn their freedom once they repaid their debt. Henry Badcock was a brewer known for great beer and opened his brewery in 1685. He brought Davis over as an indentured servant and trained him as a brewer. After Davis paid his debt, Badcock gave him his freedom. Shortly after, he was hired by George Campion, another brewer, first at Pluma Feathers Tavern and eventually at Joshua Carpenter's Tavern, The Ton. Campion tried to force Davis to brand some of his beer with Henry Badcock's trademark. Davis wasn't too happy with Campion's request, so he refused and took out a newspaper ad denouncing Campion. George Campion died in 1731, and his wife Mary took over as tavern keeper for the Tun Tavern. As a new tavern keeper for the Tun, Mary started carrying out small services for the Eight Partners Brewery. Elizabeth Cuff, the proprietary for the Eight Partners Brewery, kept a relationship with Mary and the Tun. One task Elizabeth subcontracted to Mary was to prepare the brewery workers' meals. In return for her work, Elizabeth gave Mary discounts on beer purchased from the Eight Partners Brewery. This collaboration developed a harmonizing relationship between the Eight Partners Brewery and the Tun. The partnership between the Tun and Eight Partners Brewery added to the Tun's success and more and more clubs and societies started visiting the Tun, including the Masonic Lodge and the Fashionable Governors Club. Alexander Hamilton was part of the Governors Club and they met every night in the Tun. Hamilton discussed English poets, trade, war with Spain, and the expedition to seize Cartagena. He drank several toasts to the fairer sex with the clubmen. However, Hamilton wasn't too happy with the behavior of some of his men. Even when the governor was present, Hamilton stated, Now and then, some persons there showed a particular fondness for introducing gross, smutty expressions, which did not altogether become a company of philosophers and men of sense. Although many clubs and societies used taverns to discuss their agenda and have their meetings, they were interrupted nightly by customers. 
Taverns were open to the public, and many meetings turned into fights when other tavern-goers overheard a conversation they disagreed with. Booze and politics don't usually mix. Some tavern-keepers humored clubmen by offering private areas. But these areas varied in size and privacy due to the size of the public house in which they were meeting and whether a profit could be made by leaving out other customers. However, some publicans were remarkably supportive. William Black was invited to lunch with the noblemen of the city's beefsteak club, which met at the Tun Tavern. At the Tun, he was treated by the members to 20 dishes in addition to beefsteaks. At this time, the proprietary for the Tun was James Mullen. Now, Marines will recognize the name Mullen, so keep that name in mind as we move forward in our story. The Beefsteak Club Luncheon was a huge event and James Mullen could not fit other customers into Tun while this event was going on. Mullen closed off the tavern and made it a private event for the Beefsteak Club. William Black and other members of the Beefsteak Club were very impressed with the privacy and service of the Tun. They decided to have an impromptu entertainment for the governor and the other gentlemen of the city. William Black did not give Mullen much time to prepare. Black walked into the tun around noon and asked them to prepare for the spontaneous entertainment in one hour. At one o'clock, the governor, his entourage, and other Virginians arrived at the tun. They started drinking, as one would expect when visiting a tavern, and Black stated, A little past two we sat down to a very grand table, having upwards of fifteen dishes on it at once, which was succeeded by a very fine collation. Among the many dishes which made our dinner, was a large turtle sent as a present to Governor Thomas from a friend. We had the table replenished with all sorts of wine the tavern could afford, and that in great abundance. The Tun wasn't a large public house, but they did have a very skilled kitchen staff, which was very rare at the time. Tavern keepers didn't always keep a restaurant in their tavern, and the Tun was known for serving fine food. But James Mullen wasn't a fool. The reason why he was so cooperative and enthusiastic to provide William Black with such a fancy feast in short notice was because of the profit he could make from entertaining guests of such notoriety. It was worth excluding his other customers for the day. This was rare for the time, and no other taverns followed Mullen and the Tun. This gave him a huge benefit. Most clubs and societies would continuously be uninterrupted when they held meetings at these taverns, but not at the Tun. In the Tun's prime, more and more organizations used the Tun because of their privacy. One of the locations Philadelphia's first Masonic Lodge met was at the Tun. The Tun is credited as being the birthplace of the Freemasons. In 1732, the tavern hosted the first meeting of St. John's Lodge No. 1 of the Grand Lodge of the Masonic Temple. The Masonic Temple of Philadelphia recognizes Tun Tavern as the birthplace of Masonic teachings in America. James Mullen was in the tavern trade most of his life. He lost one of his eyes to smallpox and turned to the tavern industry, since most trades benefited from a man with two eyes. Now, you're going to hear me say this a few times as we progress through history, but there is a lot of information on the internet that's presented as fact, but the reality is we don't know. The parents of Robert Mullen is one of those facts. We'll dig into Robert Mullen in a future episode. But for those of you who don't know, Robert Mullen is the first Marine Corps recruiter. It's unclear if James Mullen was the father of Robert Mullen. Robert Mullen is credited to be the proprietor of Tun Tavern after his father's passing in 1774. However, nearly all of those accounts are undocumented, 
and we'll get into that in episode 7. But if he did take over proprietorship from his father, the timeline sort of makes sense that James was his father. Some historians also credit Thomas Mullen as being his father. Regardless of who worked where and who was whose son, we do know that Robert Mullen did serve in the Marine Corps and served under the first commandant in the Marine Corps, Samuel Nicholas. Samuel Nicholas was well known in colonial Philadelphia and had many advantages early in his life. Because of Nicholas's notoriety, the Second Continental Congress tasked him to raise two Marine battalions at the Continental expense. In the next episode, we'll dig further into Samuel Nicholas, and we'll touch on a topic that Marines might not agree with. Tun Tavern might not be the birthplace of the United States Marine Corps. Thank you for joining. Next week, we will get a little closer to the birth of the Marine Corps and explore Samuel Nicholas, the first Commandant of the United States Marine Corps. We will take a look at his life, why the Second Continental Congress selected him to raise two battalions of Marines, and take a look at some other establishments he created. We will also take a look at the tavern Samuel Nicholas owned and discuss why some historians believe that Tun Tavern is not the birthplace of the United States Marine Corps. Being a Marine, Tun Tavern will always hold a place in my heart, but there are some very interesting arguments on why the birthplace may be at another tavern. Stay tuned. If you like what you're hearing, check out historyofthemarinecorps.com. Here you can subscribe to our newsletter, find out more information about each episode, which includes references used. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at Marine History and on Instagram at History of the Marines. If you like what you're hearing, tell a friend. We rely on listeners like you to share and any help would be greatly appreciated. If you don't like what you're hearing, please contact us through History of the Marine Corps and let us know why. I'm always looking for ways to improve. Thanks for listening and Semper Fi.